The battle for the soul is a quest, not a day. And we'll see at the end if what I've said matches the title, all right? <laughs> um, it was really great to have Mark and the worship team lead us off as we did. I don't know how you feel, but I feel that sense of the presence of God here. And I want to not get in the way of that, so I'm going to try to be swift and set things up. So in everything I say today, um, I want it to bring us back to that sense of coming before God, ready to worship, ready to lay ourselves down. Um, and uh, I'm going to speak a little bit in a non-European fashion, around in circles and back again. Um, and uh, so I'll tell you where I want, to get, I want us to get to um, in a bit of a picture. And apologies for those of you who've heard this shared before. It is not, it is, it's, it's a picture, it's not an accurate picture, if you know what I mean. This is not how things were. But at one point, scholars thought that when Jesus referred to uh, the eye of the needle, he said it's harder for a rich man um, to pass through an eye of the needle, or, sorry, it's harder for, a, uh, sorry, harder for a camel to pass through an eye of the needle than it is for a rich man to come to God. Um, people thought, ah, actually, he's not meaning an eye of the needle. He means there's a gate in Jerusalem that was really very tight. And for a camel to pass through that gate, they had to take all the stuff off it, right? Great analogy, which I'm going to use. Completely untrue. But just before you go start searching to say, was there a gate? There was a sheep gate. There was, the, there was, no, there was no eye of the needle gate. However, let's take that picture, a really thin place. I think there's a sense that when we come to worship God... There's a sense that we have to take off our baggage. What do we mean by baggage? Well, baggage is the stuff that hinders us, is stuff that causes problems and that kind of thing. We, we kind of feel that actually coming to worship God, we want to lay those things aside. We had a bit of a discussion, some of us, on Friday morning about someone had said, oh, put your baggage by the door. The idea is you can pick it up on the way out. We don't want to pick up the baggage on the way out. We want to get rid of the baggage, yeah? Anyway, to come to worship God, to come and give him full attention, we need to take our baggage off. But there's also a sense that that place is so precious, so, so, so thin, that we actually have to strip off. Oh, I'm not very popular on this side. We actually have to take our clothes off. We have to go through to God, metaphorically speaking. I'm not, it's a bit cold for this now. We have to go through naked. So what do our clothes represent? Well, I think our clothes represent the things that we feel uh, we have rightly to do. Our ministries, if you like, yeah, our ministry of a father, ministry of a, I don't know, workplace, whatever. But actually, when we come to worship God, we lay aside all those things of barrier, and we come before him and say, God, here I am. Redirect me. Here I am a sacrifice, a living sacrifice for you. What is it you would want me to do? Because we could get so wrapped up in the, oh, I'm a, I'm a children's worker, or... I'm a, you know, I'm a worship leader or that kind of thing, that we, we get stuck on that and we get more lost in that identity than actually identity as we're worshippers and we're sons and daughters of the living God. And that's where we want to come and that's where I want us to come back to. You know what? I was telling, I was telling the worship group a little while back, the thing I really love is when we come into a point of worship and everyone abandons their instruments. Yeah? I love seeing it when we come in at that point no longer can Michael be constricted behind those drums. It feels a lot of time he's trying to break out of it, I know. But there are times when everyone's standing up and everyone's calling out that they've stripped off the clothing of being in the worship banner, they're just worshippers. And that's the sense I want us to come to. I feel that's the sense we've got to come to today. 
Praise God. Yes? Good. Right. So, if you have a Bible, and Jacob will turn with us, if you could turn to 2 Timothy, Timothy 2, verse 3, that would be good. This is where we're going to kind of sit. Is this mine now? Yes. Yeah. Peter's water. <laughs> right. Good. It'd be good if I turn there as well. Otherwise, I'll start reading from another verse. My mother-in-law once watched the film uh, Vanilla Sky, um, but she got the sound mixed up, so she watched Vanilla Sky with a back backing track of Countdown. <laughs> she never really understood the film. Um, I think that'd be great, wouldn't it? Can you imagine that? Right. Good, okay. Second Timothy 2, verse 3. Um, I think we'll go verse 3 to verse 6. I'm reading from the um, Christian Standard Bible, which I picked especially because I know they won't have this on the screen. So we'll see how my stuff matches up with what you've got. Share in suffering as a good soldier of Christ Jesus. No one serving as a soldier gets entangled in the concerns of civilian life. He seeks to please the, com the commanding officer. Also, if anyone competes as an athlete, he is not crowned unless he competes according to the rules. The hard-working farmer ought to be the first to get a share of the crops. Consider what I say, for the Lord will give you understanding in everything. Let's just sit in uh, verses 3 and 4. Um, no, sorry, four, verse 4. No one serving as a soldier gets involved in civilian affairs. He wants to please his commanding officer. Now, in, in Roman times, um, in ancient times, the link between the recruiter and your commanding officer was quite close. So when it says um, his commanding officer, that was also the person who recruited him, who came in, sometimes forcibly snatched him, press-ganged him, that kind of thing. So there was this, this kind of attachment, um, which those of you who've looked at things about the First World War, we have these powers brigades where people joined together. That was that kind of relationship and knowing and joined together. Um, so there is that, that familiarity with the person that recruits us. Who's the person that recruits us? I know all the kids have gone out, and I know the answer in, children, in Sunday school is always Jesus, but that's the answer here. <laughs> the person who recruits us, our commanding officer is Jesus. He recruits us, he draws us in, and he commands us. So, it says, no one serving as a soldier gets involved in civilian affairs. Civilian affairs or the affairs of citizens. So what do we mean by that? What does that mean? Well, I think civilian affairs are the things which are not to do with warring, not to do with progress. They're to do with politics, with a big P and a small P. They're the distractions. They're the things which involve talk and not action. They're, they're the things that draw us aside from the progress and the thing that God's laid out from us. And uh, because of the uh, slight confusion in my own head about uh, being here today, and speaking with you. This is a developing uh, theme, which I will come back to, I'm sure, at some point. Um, so, but, you know, you're getting the first strain of it today. I, I have a concern for us, us here in Lifeline, but us in Christendom, us in the church, generally, that far too often we get distracted by civilian affairs. And they wrap themselves up in different ways. They look really important. They look things that should draw us out, and, they, and we express them in different ways. But ultimately, 
they're not the things of a soldier. We can, we can get involved in all kinds of campaigns, but if it's not the thing that God's giving to us, it, it's not a quas- question of whether it's good or not, it's whether it's God's given thing for us or not. See, Richard's involved in education, okay? That's, that's where we believe God's placed him. I think it's where you believe God's placed you as well. I could get really worked up about education and primary education and different things like that. But if it's not what God's given me to do, it's a distraction. If I do something that God's not given me to do, what is it? It's sin. It's harsh, isn't it? Oh, that's really good. That's, it's really good. Oh, I really, you know, that person's really nice. They must be, they must be right because they're nice. My kids sometimes say, oh, I really like that teacher, they're really kind. And I think kindness is an interesting concept for kids. Kind means they gave them a sweet. That's kindness. It's a quick distraction in that sense. So I suppose what I've been doing recently, and I was hoping to have finished it by the time I spoke to you, but, you know, work in progress, is I started to view what, what in me, God, is civilian affairs? What are the things in me? Where am I potentially not competing according to the rules? Where am I not putting the hard work in as a farmer? Where are the things I get worked up about? I, um, my, my sister-in-law phoned um, Heidi up, um, I think it was to talk with some illness in the family. And for some reason, she started at me about Brexit. So she's in Northern Ireland. They're all about hard border, soft border, hard border, soft border. And I'm saying, it's your opportunity to shut the rest of them out. <laughs> Rob's not here, is he? Rob's not here. St. Patrick's Day, Rob's not here. Right. We will not say anything. <laughs> we will not say anything about Ireland, particularly after yesterday. <laughs> and they're beating us in the rugby. But, so she was, she was really worked up about this. She is, she is a, a Remainer. She's part of the liberal kind of intelligentsia and all that kind of thing over there. And I'm, you know, I'm, I sit between the I basically argue against whoever I'm talking to. That's the way I do it. Contrary. But that, you know, it just led astray. The whole thing was about this. Um, about this particular issue. And I think there's other things that are civilian affairs. I think other things which distract us. I think sometimes it's things where people say, well, it's natural for me. It's natural for me to sleep in in the mornings. I naturally sleep in. Or... I naturally get worried, or I naturally pick a fight, or I do all these things. It's just me, yeah? I naturally am depressed. I'm naturally attracted to money. I'm naturally, all those kind of things. As soon as we say that natural, or what I'm led to naturally, is right, then we're in a funny place, because our natures are fallen. So just because I feel I'm one way, doesn't mean it's right, yeah? Just because I feel led one way or the other doesn't mean it's right. That's, I believe, part of the whole thing about uh, civilian affairs and those kind of things. I think the word I've been trying to look into, and I've not got to grits with it yet, is about soulishness. When, um, when, you know when you go to watch fireworks? Yeah, when the fireworks go up, what happens? Fireworks go up, what's, what's the noise that the crowd make? Oh, oh. Now, not that I want to any way restrict your freedom, but sometimes when we share testimony, that's the kind of noises we make. Ah, 
Oh, oh, isn't that nice? Oh. And, and it's like, oh, it's, it's nice, it's wonderful. And, and I think sometimes we need to kind of say, yes, it's good. Mm. Kind of a bit, a bit more kind of, you know, oomph, oomph. We need a bit of oomph, that kind of thing. Um, many years ago, one of the leaders in the church spoke a whole sermon. He said, Jesus is not nice. He's righteous. And he would say nice. So we remember that sermon because he kept on going on that. It was about nice. It's civilian. It's nice. But we want righteousness. And righteousness will bring us in conflict to other people. Because we'll say things that are not popular. Or we'll be things that are not popular. I don't want to pick a fight for a sake of fight. Because that in itself can be part of my nature. But I want to make sure I'm in the place of being... And, and you know what? Here's the thing. We should be, just by our very nature, winding people up. Not being, you know, awkward. Yes? That, I mean, let's, let's pick on someone who's really lovable. I'm really struggling. Um, <laughs> uh, let me think. Yeah. No, I'm just trying to think of someone who universally we would all think is lovable. <sighs> Uh, is it Andy Garland? Uh, no, I don't see. Andy Garland's quirky. Uh, Ra- <laughs> Rachel Wright. Rachel Wright, come on down. Come on down. The price is right. You've got to come down. Right, already you see, it's, she's broken the thing. I need, I need an object. Now, what I could really do, this is Rachel is the epitome of niceness, right? <laughs> Now, what I need is the opposite. Now, I know I'm here already. <laughs> right. I've known Rachel for many years. You do you want to not face them? Do you want to put it back to them? <laughs> Rachel has never done anything wrong as far as I'm concerned, except she would always visit my mother when she was cooking, which meant my dinner was always delayed <laughs> and the cabbage was boiled even, I've never, I, I didn't know there was so much cabbage in the world. When I got married, I thought that most of the world was filled with cabbage. I discovered that there's not so much cabbage in the world. There we go. <laughs> right. So, who here, who here has been blessed by Rachel? Look at that. Right, okay. That's, that's what we needed. I've been blessed by Rachel as well. Rachel thought I could do quite well in maths, GCSE. She thought I could get a B. I got a C. Jamie, Jamie got an A. Yeah, yeah, we've been still celebrating that now, Jamie's A. (laughs) We're in shock. Jamie got an A in maths. People meet you, you know. know, Hang out with Avril, Avril, you know, he's Deputy Lieutenant Albert. Jamie got an A in his maths. (laughs) Much more impressive. Right, okay. Now, imagine, here's Rachel. So you can see on that side. You know what, at, at, at Rachel's wedding, Dennis turned to me and said, how can someone so beautiful love sausages? <laughs> I'm pretty sure that's what, I think we had a little chat. How can someone so beautiful love sausages? Right, sorry, I don't want to expose you. <laughs> it's become a whole different code for in our house. So, um, right. So, um, here's Rachel. She is naturally lovely. She has blessed you lot and that kind of thing. But I want you 
to imagine that she walks into situations and whoever she is, people want to kill her. Just by who she is. We know her all the way we are here, but there is something about her that is no different to what we've experienced, but for some reason, people want to kill her. Right? Because that's the way it should be. There should be something about us that is, that is repelling, repulsive, and attractive all at the same time. I'm trying to figure that one out. That means that people can't stand her. I know you, if I did it for me, I know you could all work with that. But, but I'm talking, we've established she is lovely, she's godly, she, she's confronted us, she does all those kind of things. But there should be something in her that is unpalatable to the world. Yeah? When was the last time someone spat at you? <laughs> yes, yes, in the playground, yes, yeah, a bit different. Right? Or those kind of, that's what, we, that's what should happen. There should be something about us because we're soldiers, not civilians. Okay? I'm not saying that Rachel should try and work it up and do that kind of thing, but there should be something about us because the good and righteous in us is at odds with the world. Now, I'm not saying we should stir it up. I'm not saying we should pick a fight, but I should say that we want to stir that thing up within us that is so bright that people have to make a decision. There's a, there's a book, what's the title of it? Um, Evidence that Demands a Verdict. Is that a Josh McDowell book or something like that? Yeah? It, there is that sense that, and I think C.S. Lewis said it in Mere Christianity, that you know, some people say, oh, Jesus was a wise man, or he was, you know, he was, he was, maybe he was a bit mad, or that kind of thing. You can't just say, yeah, 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 he was a nice teacher. It has to have a response, and, a, and Christ in us has to have a response. You can go now. Unless I think of anything else particularly amusing. There you go. Right. So, we should have something about us. And I suppose what I'm wanting to say, is there something too palatable about me? Is there something that makes me acceptable when I shouldn't be acceptable? Is there things within us? I, I'm chewing over this at the moment. I will not say it's a set thing. I keep trying out on the faith action things. But I, the faith action team, but I have a sneaky suspicion anything that ends up with ism is a potential idol. Individualism, consumerism, feminism, communism. <laughs> we could go on, go on, go on. Because it becomes a, becomes a thing of focus. Something's tickled, Fatima. You're going to have to share it with the whole class, Fatima. Right. Huh? Andrew Tiddles. He's a... <laughs> a prism, yes. I was trying to think of that one myself. A prism. A prism could be between you and God. So, it's, it's, so what is an idol? An idol is anything that gets in the way. And I think some of our attitudes... I think sometimes we get into a place of being wrong advocates. We feel we have to stand up for the person who's not in the room or the attitude or that kind of thing. And it puts us at odds with the word of God. So there is a thing in us. I think God has given us a sense of ability to tell what is right and wrong. But ultimately, God determines what is good. So when I look at some of the stuff in the Old Testament, which seems to be like God-sponsored genocide, we'll figure that out. But God is love. So how does that work? Yeah? Now, some of you here are, are clever. I'm looking at the front row. Neil, right? Some, some people are clever, are qualified, you know, that kind of stuff. I look out, I see some burgeoning brains, and then I see more of you like me. And, and one of the things I found in life is that not understanding stuff, I have a certain security about it. 
not being able to understand what, what's happening, not being able to understand the acts of God. And I know for some people, maybe it's part of your ism, that you want to understand everything, control it, kind of get to grips with it. And intellectualism, oh, there you go, thank you, Neil. And that can become a, a barrier in itself. But actually, there's a faith barrier, there's a faith, sorry, there's a faith way through, which is about believing and trusting. Yeah, which is not about getting it all together and understanding it all. I think there's, there's a couple of things that we have to watch for. I think we have to watch for this stuff about these, these isms, these idols, these things. And I think we have to watch for the soulish reaction in us. That soul survivor this year, um, there was a particular moment where there's a lot of young people responding. And Mike Pilavachi um, said... Uh, let people respond, don't slobber on them. Don't slobber on them. They need Jesus, they don't, quite frankly, they don't need you. <laughs> and the next night he got up and apologised for being so harsh. I think he was down on the thing. I think what happens sometimes, I'm going to do it with Mark, right? Because Mark loves this. Right? I think what happens is, is we see God moving on someone and they're starting to... What momentum I had, I've lost. Um, won't slobber it all over it. Okay, right. I could see me and Matt just entwined in the wires there. So we have a reaction. We want to do things. Uh, as a parent, you kind of realise that your reactions aren't always the best ones. There's that great book by, uh, um, by Danny Silk. that it's The title is Loving Your Kids on Purpose. Yeah? Because our natural response isn't always the best in that sense. And, uh, and it's that thing about not trusting my flesh, not trusting my soul, not trusting myself in those things, but instead turning to be what God wants me to be. Let's have a look at, uh, oh, it's in the other note. Let's have a look at second, uh, sorry, 1 Corinthians 9, verse 27. Right, instead I discipline my body and bring it under strict control that so after preaching to others I myself will not be disqualified. It's again, it's about running races and stuff like that. Sorry, was I too quick for you? First Corinthians, First Corinthians 9, verse 27. Again, it's a lot of the stuff about crowns and that kind of stuff. Uh, so verse 24, don't you know that runners in the stadium all race, but only one receives the prize. Run in such a way to win the prize. Now everyone who competes exercises self-control in everything. They do it to receive a perishable crown, but we an imperishable crown. So I do not run like one who runs aimlessly or box like one beat in the air. Instead, I discipline my body and bring it under strict control so that after preaching to others, I myself will not be disqualified. Okay? There is this sense that we are being renewed and that that we are coming more and more into understanding of how God would have us be. Yeah? But there is a battle. Just because I respond, uh, someone prays for me, I feel different, doesn't mean I can switch on autopilot and just follow my feelings. Yeah? Just because I have an experience doesn't mean it's over. Just because something's changed in my mind doesn't mean I'm all the way through. There is still a need to pursue and follow after God and to be questioning God is this the right reaction what should I be doing I've, I remember a number of years ago uh, someone was preaching on forgiveness here 
And I thought, oh, I, feel, I don't feel I have any unforgiveness. I think I've forgiven everyone. And then someone walked past, and I went, oh, like that, inside. And I thought, oh, wow. I, I've forgiven them, I remember. The particular, it wasn't a big thing. I thought, right, I've forgiven them. I've moved on. But there was a sense that actually it's not a kind of one-stop shop, that actually there's a process of some of these things. There's a process of forgiveness. There's a process of moving on. There's a process of retraining. It's not just a once-off affair. It's not one thing which just ends in, uh, in an instant change. Right. One last thought. We feel that God is speaking to us about harvest. But in the words, in the, in the Bible, it doesn't say go and make converts. It says go and make disciples. <clears throat> so part of what I think we're challenged with is, okay, if we're going to be purveyors or peddlers of, of discipleship, are we being discipled ourselves? Are there people that we're allowing to speak into our lives, not just because we go and sit and confess in front of them, but because we're walking alongside together? So accountability is one where I can talk about what's going on. But discipleship talks about proximity. We have to be close with each other. And I think, again, not work this all out, but I wonder if the level of those that we can see harvested and the numbers of those that we can see join us is restricted to some extent by the amount of discipleship we can give. In any organisation, there's always 20% of people who do 80% of the work. You know that, that law? And this is my thing. I keep on seeing, in my mind, some of us. Some of us who need to put aside civilian affairs and step up. Some of us who need to get over, and I include myself in this, some of the immaturities and the kind of the, the preferences and things and say, let me get discipled. Let me move on with God. It doesn't matter that I'm over 40, that I'm 50, that I'm 60, I'm 70, I'm retired, whatever. I want to move on to the next thing in God. I want to take off the baggage that gets in the way, but I also want to strip off the old clothes and see what God will give me now so that I can be ready to be a disciple of others. And the best way, of course, of being a disciple of others is to be discipled myself. Yeah? And how all that works, I don't know, but it does start with a change in me. And sometimes we can be a bit awkward as a group of people. Yeah? And it's kind of like, my goodness, we ain't got time for awkwardness. As Britain engaged in a really horrific time in 1940, when it looked like we were about to be overcome by the Nazi threat from Germany, suddenly a whole bunch of things got changed. And awkwardness had to be laid aside. Preferences had to be laid aside. I remember talking to my dad's neighbour who, um, who was drafted into the Navy. And he said, yeah, one of the problems with the regulars really didn't like us because we were trained in six weeks what they were trained in six months. Because you had to cut some corners. Had to deal with some health and safety restrictions. Had to do whatever, yeah? Because, it, because they were getting ready for war. And one of the reasons why Britain actually did better in itself is because we, we took on the role of total war. I, the entire population was geared towards war. They didn't do that in Germany until 1942. But there was that sense of getting ready for war. And what I have a sense, okay, I'm talking harvest, talking war, I'm mixing my metaphors, but I have a sense that 
there's kind of like, um, I think it's a vacuum. Well, actually, no, it's osmosis. You know osmosis? I'll go for osmosis. I can't do the physics. I can do the biology, right? Osmosis, you get a salty substance, and it, and it sucks stuff through a semi-permeable membrane. Am I right? I'm looking at you, your physics. What am I looking at you for? Where's a biologist? Right, okay. So the saltiness sucks stuff through. Is that right? Like that. <laughs> So, I thought saltiness would help, but maybe it doesn't. But basically, that, there is that sense that as something, as something moves through this way, it sucks something behind. Yeah? <laughs> You've obviously not got that advanced. Your education's not finished. You need to come and do it. Yeah. <laughs> Kids nowadays, they don't do the science like we did it. But this is the sense. I have a sense that as some of us say, all right, I know I've been like this, and I know this is the way I naturally am, and I know this is my kind of outview, and I know maybe I'm a bit socialist, or I'm a bit capitalist, or I'm a bit feminist, or all those kind of things. I'm going to put that stuff aside so that I can be ready to be a disciple for Jesus, not a disciple for one of those other things. And that as I prepare myself, as I lay those things aside, as I become a soldier, not a civilian, that I will expect that other people will then be linked with me that I will become a disciple of others. Because, heck, I don't want to disciple people into my political thinking. I want to disciple into what God's got for them. But here's the key. Let's come now together. Let's lay aside the baggage. Let's lay aside our clothing, those things we feel God's given us. And let's take a time of worship and let him point to us where we're wearing you know, the odd scarf or the odd thing that we need to let go. Yeah? And let's come back into that time of worship. The band will lead us now and see what God has for us. Yeah? And let's hope that he can speak through us now and identify things with us so that we might be a group of people ready for harvest because we're ready to disciple. Amen? Amen. Let's stand together. Yeah, so I feel, just in what Daniel's been bringing to us, there's two particular things um, that have really resonated with me. That thing of of getting caught up in the civilian affairs. So what, what do they look like for you? What are the things, the everyday things, that draw you aside from this wonderful place that God has for you? In the prayer meeting before we gathered, I felt God gave me this uh, scripture from Ephesians 3. Because this is where our focus should be. Paul writes, I pray that out of his glorious riches... He may strengthen you with power through his spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. And I pray that you, being rooted and established in love, may have power together with all the saints to grasp how wide, how long, and high, and how deep is the love of Christ. And to know this love that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. See, that's the thing that God wants us to have in our minds. This unknowable thing. This thing that is beyond our understanding. This thing that we could never get to. Yet he wants our minds to be fixed on that. And I don't know about you, but I know that there's more for me to grasp of his love. There is more for me to grasp of his love for my friends. You know, and if I'm discipling others, it's this love that's the thing that's got to drive me. It's this love that is at the heart of everything. And his love has to take over everything. His love has to be greater 
than anything else. Any other draw on my time, any other draw on my mind. Lord, we want to turn our hearts to you. We turn aside from those civilian affairs. And we say, Lord, cause that to increase within us, that we might have power together with all the saints to grasp how long and how wide, how high and how deep is your love. Blessed be your name. Hallelujah. Thank you, Lord.